We are continuing on our series in the book of Esther, and this particular passage is what we've labeled in a a small mini-series within the book of Esther called the allure of the self, Um, but this is actually part of why the book of Esther was written to explain how the Feast of Purim came about. And the Feast of Purim was a celebration in ancient Israel where the whole nation celebrated their salvation from being annihilated by uh, the Persian kingdom, specifically with this guy named Haman. And part of what we're showing here is that, you know, genocide is, is terrible, obviously. Our world has been affected by that throughout, throughout uh, its history. But the seeds of uh, annihilating people, I know that we don't like to think of ourselves uh, that violently, but the seeds of pride are, are within all of us. And uh, you're going to see that specifically in verse 8 of our passage today, and that's kind of where we're going to focus in on. But this, this really is the beginning of the rationale for the Feast of Purim in, in this passage, is how it's read historically. And so this is God's word to you today. This is uh, Esther 3, verses 7 through 15. You can find this written in your bulletin, or if you have a Bible, Esther 3, verses 7 through 15. It's God's word. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And that was just like dice back in the day. Um, They cast it uh, month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in the providences of your kingdom. Their laws are different from every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so it is not in the king's profit to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who charge of the king, in charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took the signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, do to them, do to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to the law that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governor's over all the provinces and to all the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by the couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. I'm going to pause right there and look up for me. So that law was issued, and it was going to take place 11 months after it went out. Okay, So that's, that's where we are in, in sort of the timeline of when this was going to take place. Okay, So back at the text, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by the proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day, The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman, what were they doing? They were sitting around drinking, 
And then it says the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Okay, um, one of the very challenging things to do as, as a minister is that you take God's word and you're seeking to expound it, explain it in its own context, but then bridge the gap for what it could mean for us today. And when you read sections like that in Scripture, I don't know if you're like this, but I'm like, I, there's no way that that has any relevance. There's too many details, right? And one of the fascinating things about God's Word is that if you peer into it long enough, if you um, submit yourself to it, sit under it, it actually will begin to light up in terms of how it affects every single detail of your life. And that's what we always say here is that this book is alive. It's like that Harry Potter book that comes alive to the human heart. And so that's the reason it may be weird for you, for uh, someone to sit up here and read all the details of that text, but that's why we do it. Because every single detail in the Bible actually uh, can speak to your heart and what you go through today because the Holy Spirit speaks through it. And so that's why we pray. We're asking God's Spirit to illumine the Word to our hearts. And so let's sit in silence for just a moment and uh, pray with me towards that end. Lord, you have been faithfully present to your people since the beginning of when you created the world and you created human beings. And Lord, you were faithfully present 450 years before your son Jesus came into this world here in the Persian Empire, and you're faithfully present to us today. And so, Lord, uh, you want to change us. You want to mold us into your image, Lord. You want us to mirror you in this world and the flesh, Lord, the self that seeks to exist outside of your tender care is going to fight against that. Um, And that means that large parts of us are going to fight against you right here and right now. And so our task, Lord, is for us to be to be your image, to be your servants, to to learn to sacrifice the self for the sake of not just your glory, but for the sake of our brothers and sisters that are in this room. Lord, this is the way to actually find ourself, to give it up. And so I ask, Lord, that as this is a task beyond us, you need to come by your Spirit and train us what it means to be human again, just like what Yinka said. So would you do that? In Christ's name, amen. Um, if I have, have listened somewhat accurately over the last six years, the, the theme that I hear that most people struggle with, if I have one-on-one conversations with you guys or sit in small groups, is that most people at some level struggle with loneliness and or anxiety or both at the same time. And this passage, I think, shows us what lies at the heart of communities that have become antisocial, where the self, the individual self gets exalted, and what that does on a communal level, not just within our communities, but, but nationally, 
And the effect that it has is that it makes us feel extremely lonely and extremely anxious. And part of what the gospel does into communities is that it says it's okay and it is safe to actually confess that we're all prideful. It's actually safe and okay to to say there are parts of you that I don't like and therefore I've distanced myself from you. And that's part of why the world is fractured. That's part of why I feel lonely because I don't know how to move towards the other because the other scares me. And what Jesus has come into the world to do is that he's come to heal that and mend that. And that's what our passage is about. It's, it's the struggle and the creation of what I, what I would call difference or diversity. Now, the, the first point, the, the first uh, thing that we're going to look at is that the self outside of God struggles in the presence of difference. So when I first moved here, I went to a football game immediately, you know, because that's what you do. And I noticed the, uh, the name on the side of the field that said Osborne. And I, I didn't grow up with that as a family name that we always said in my home. And so I turned to uh, Sarah's grandfather, Grandpa Arn, and I said, um, Arn, who's Osborne? And, you know, I did, so like, okay, I didn't do my homework, okay? <laughs> Incarnating into the culture, I'm sorry. Um, but he looked at me like I, like I was from Mars. He's like, are you kidding me, son? Um, and, I, and I felt immediately uh, othered. You know, I was like, I, I'm sorry, but, you know, I, I know about Herschel Walker. You know, those are the names that I that I grew up with. And it's very easy in any culture that you grow up in to assume that what you think everyone just sort of thinks. And strangely, and this is very important, especially you younger folks in the younger generation. OK, the way out of our bias is not through information. Like, we're not meant to, like, Google or Siri things just so that we don't have moments like that on the field where I don't know who Osborne is. That's not the way of the gospel. But the way of the gospel is to humbly listen to the other that is in your presence and to incarnate into their world so that you become the fabric of the culture in which you inhabit. This is not only what Jesus taught us to do, but this is what he's actually going to do for us. That's what we're going to learn. And this is the opposite of what Haman is doing in our passage. Haman, uh, you know, he didn't look miserable. This is the irony of, of the story of Esther. He gets everything he wants, but he's miserable, and the Jews get nothing that they want, and they party at the end. But Haman did not look miserable at first. It looked like he was getting his way and surrounding himself by like-minded people while eliminating those who were different than him. Okay? So in our first section, you, you see in Haman, the self, it seeks to align it itself with power, and it makes a persuasive and political argument against the other to destroy the Jews, to destroy people that he didn't like. And in verse 9, every historian, every commentator said that this would have been welcome, this would have been a welcome, persuasive 
thing to King Xerxes because he had just gotten defeated by the Greeks. And so if you plunder the Jews and you get all their money, you can replenish the bank account that's empty because you just lost the war to the, to the Greeks. And in verse 10, the signet ring, which held all of the authority to codify and implement law, was given to Haman. And so I want you all to get this. All of the legal, military, and financial power in this kingdom was aligned to destroy God's people. Okay? Everything was against them. And what the reader understands is that in the midst of that, Haman was completely trapped in his own pride. This is why, you guys, the people in your own life right now that annoy you and that you disagree with are possibly some of the only relationships in your life that are helping you experience what it's going to be like to be in the presence of God, who is wholly other than you, who is distinct from you. Haman sought to surround himself with sameness and affirmation. And so I want you to look at verse 8. This is what's happened. This is what happens to the self outside of God. Haman came to the king Xerxes and said, There is a certain people, tell me if this sounds familiar, okay? There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in the province of your kingdom. They're everywhere. Their laws are different from those of everyone else, and they don't keep the king's law, so it's not in the king's profit to tolerate them. Let's break that down. In this verse, what you see is what happens in communities and nations when the individual self gets power. The self outside of God is so insecure that it cannot handle difference. Now remember, pride at its root is competitive in nature. And Haman's rationale for destroying the Jews is is quite compelling because he first tells the truth. They were scattered across the kingdom Then he tells a half-truth, their laws were somewhat different, and then he lies. He says, they don't obey your laws, when actually Mordecai saved Xerxes' life. And here's the conclusion that Haman says. He says, therefore, it's not in the king's interest to tolerate them. What he just said there is that these people aren't good for the nation, O king. Another way to translate that section is that They're not like us, and so we can't be at rest around them. The Hebrew word for tolerate is where we get the word rest from. Haman could not rest around people that didn't affirm him. And he's using Xerxes' power to get rid of them. Let me repeat that. Haman could not rest around people that didn't affirm him. Christopher Ash says, you know that pride is at work in communities when you begin to define yourself by what you're against. And this is just the peculiar thing about the gospel because Jesus Christ stands with you and you are against him. And to the degree that you believe that will be the degree that you can rest around people that don't affirm you. 
This is part of the struggle that we are in today, you guys, and I want to talk about how do we get back into your relationship with people that aren't just totally the same in how we think. Our city's namesake comes from the president, Abraham Lincoln. If you read Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address compared to his second inaugural address, it is fascinating because the first one, 1861, the second one, 1865. There's a lot that happened in those four years, a civil war. And the whole nation was in disrepair. All of our communities were completely divided. And the whole nation literally needed to heal in community. And he uses this famous line in his second inaugural address in his effort to help heal the communities that were fractured. And he said, this famous line. He said, with malice toward none and charity for all. And what he was doing is that he was encouraging our nation to see God's image in the other and to be a part of the other and their lives and their healing. And when God came down in the person of Jesus, what he was saying to you and to me, he was saying, I am present I am one of you, I am also wholly other. I am God, and I am human. And that's how we learn to restore our relationships, to repair our relationships, to have diverse communities. When we see that Jesus Christ came, he's like, look, I'm not, I have every right to but I'm not coming into your life to condemn you. I'm coming to be with you, to save you. And in that that act of incarnation, what he's doing is that he's creating communities where actually you you can be joined with an enemy through him. And what, what God does is that he's the one that creates diverse communities. We don't create diverse communities in and of ourselves. What we do is seen in Haman. But when God is present to someone, they can be present to those that are different than them. And you see this in Mordecai and Esther, and I want us to begin to ask, what, is that, what does it look like for us in the present and in the future to be faithfully present in the city of Lincoln. Wherever you are, whether you're on campus or out in the, in the city itself, working your job. And we'll see this over the course of the series in Esther. My, my friend, and the prepositions are very important here, he likes to say, we actually, as Christians, we actually can be in and for the world without being of it. We can be in and for the world without being of it. And that's exactly what Esther and Mordecai are doing throughout this book. And how it works itself out in our lives is that precisely in the moments where you get hurt by your community or the moment when somebody says something that offends you or that you disagree with ideologically, that's actually the moment when you need to press in and stay the most. 
And unfortunately, what, what happens is that when somebody says something that we just don't like, we label and then we distance ourselves. And the reason why is because we have not practiced incarnating into another person's world. And what that, what that means is that we're missing out on so much joy. We're missing out on so much of the beauty of, of God that He wants us to see through each other. Haman was getting uh, everything his own way, and it's going to end in sadness for him. And God's people have nothing going their way. And the genius of this story is that God is present to Mordecai and Esther, and he calls them to wait, just like he calls Christians in every age to wait and to remember that he's governing everything despite appearances, despite their circumstances. So, for instance, look at your text in verses 12 through 15, and I want you to imagine that you are a Jew in this empire and you heard this. How expediently the law went out. Shows you how powerful Haman actually was. There were many, many different types of languages and types of people in the Persian Empire, verse 12. And then the Jews were just one of the many ethnicities and cultures in the empire the decree went out to the city of Susa, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. And then it says, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now, why was the city thrown into confusion? I think it's because the, the Jewish people were good neighbors. They were friends of folks in the Persian Empire. The Jews had been implementing this verse in Jeremiah twenty. 29 verse 7, which says, when, when you're in a pagan culture, pray for the city. Pray for its flourishing. Be good neighbors to people that don't believe what you believe. They were in the city and for the city, but not of the city. Most clearly seen when Mordecai saved the king's life. Now the point, the point is, God's people were good citizens in a pagan empire. Precisely because... They loved people that were different than them. They sacrificed themselves for the benefit of others instead of sacrificing others for the benefit of themselves, which is what Haman does. And so when the city was commanded to kill all the Jews, it was confusing. Because all these Persian people were just like, we kind of like the Jews. And this plan of genocide all started with this one person who began to treat them like the other because they wouldn't affirm him. And I, it's, not, it's not an exaggeration to say, y'all, the seeds of this stuff is in all of us. This is why when you're at the Thanksgiving meal and somebody in your family or your friends, whoever's sitting around the table, and they say something that like most of your friends would be hor horribly offended by, you know? You know, at a Thanksgiving meal, you don't bring up religion, you don't bring up politics, right? And, and when you do, and somebody says something that offends you, it's like your brain's like, danger, danger, danger. Like, get out right now. Go find your tribe. Go find people that think like you. And what God wants you to do in those moments is, is He wants you to remember, like, hey, I'm with you. It's okay. I'm with you. You can, be, you can actually be curious about people that you disagree with. This is, what the, this is what the Jews and God's people do throughout each age. 
It's okay to disagree. The gospel makes us curious. And, and curiosity is safe when you hear somebody that's different than you and it doesn't threaten your identity. I can really hear and seek to understand you instead of having to get away from you or win an argument. I can just be with you. Now here's the beauty of gospel transformation. If we admit that other people scare us when they don't act like we want them to act and when they say things that we wish they wouldn't say, when we actually admit that, we can repent. We get to repent. We can say there's actually something at work in my heart that wishes to dehumanize you simply because you're different. Because it's a threat to myself. Because if you don't affirm the self outside of God, I don't know what to do. And you get to repent. We get to repent. And gospel community, this is why I think we can be as Christians in in the world today, we have one of the most evangelistic opportunities ever because we can be communities of healing when we hurt each other, precisely because we have this thing called grace. And you can't be in community or in relationship with other people without hurting them because the self is always in the way. The self isn't dead until you go into the ground. And what God intends to do is that He intends to raise up a community that's being reformed by forgiveness and by reconciliation. So for instance, this is an example. Some of you maybe have had this experience where you're in a small group of people and somebody confesses something that's like really, really honest you know, somebody says something along the lines of like, look, I've been, I've been at church and a Christian my whole life, but if I'm, if I'm going to shoot you straight, like, I don't like reading the Bible because I don't understand it. It's hard to understand, and I know I should know it, and I just don't. Now, what happens in a moment like that is that the, the self that seeks to elevate itself above others just got sacrificed. And it's a moment that I, I like to call it's the, the gospel release, release valve that enters the room, and everyone else is like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for saying that because that's kind of how I am too. And it unites you when you have communities that, where it's safe to be broken, and people aren't going to like other you for not knowing what they know. And that's, that's what Jesus intends to create, a community where it's safe to confess sins, which is what we do here every single week. And when a community embraces you in the midst of that confession, when you feel inadequate, there's joy because it restores your humanity. Y'all, that's what the world needs. Instead of, if you say something wrong in the world, this is why everybody's scared to say like something that's like not PC, it's because you immediately get canceled. And Jesus is like, that. you can't do that in, in my church. And the reason why you can't do that is because of my blood. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to call each other out. But it does mean that we have to extend grace when somebody needs it and asks for it. And what happens when you confess a failure or something that could potentially make you feel othered is that you are sacrificing the self for the sake of the community. 
This is what happens when we believe that God draws near to us, not to condemn us. God's faithful presence to me helps me face you. God's faithful presence to you helps you face whoever is standing in front of you. To always remember, God is with me. And I am covered by the blood of Jesus. And that is eternally secure. Therefore, whoever is standing in front of me, I can move towards, not away. Even if they're like actively hurting me. Even like when they talk, it's like bee stings, you know? It's like, gosh, man, this is, this is painful. Like, what do you think it was like for Jesus to be around you? Like the distance that, that we have to travel to love another human being is not the distance that Jesus traveled to be around us. Everyone seeks to exalt the self, and this is why Christian community is unique because it's one of the only communities wherein people will tell you, <laughs> and this is the hard part, this is what we've got to call each other to do, uh, here in God's kingdom, you actually tell other people that like, hey, you got to love, you got to love your enemy. You have to move towards the people that you envy. You will see Mordecai do this. Like, he, does, he doesn't, like, go soft on, on Esther either. I mean, he stands up to Haman, but he's also going to tell Esther something that I don't think I could tell my own daughter. Like, you may have to sacrifice your life. And if you don't, God's going to raise up somebody else to do it. So do you want to get on what he's doing or not? Thomas, you know, Thomas Merton said that a saint, a saint is not a good person. A saint experiences the goodness of God. How can we create communities that experience the goodness of God. Think about your relationships right now. Your marriages, your families, your teammates, your roommates. Here's how it plays out, y'all. When, when, when it feels like somebody's against you, when somebody's hurting you, when you're not meeting somebody's expectations or they're not meeting your expectations, when you know it's going to cost, it's going to be a net negative for you to stay in relationship with this person, we oftentimes dip out. We get away. And I want you to consider what it would be like if you moved towards in that moment. And the way, the way we can do that is that you, you consider how Jesus moves towards you when you don't meet his expectations, when you hurt him. You know, Jesus, Jesus isn't going to the Father and, and saying to, to the king, now look, look what Matt's done with his life. Father, he, Matt doesn't obey your laws. It's not in your best interest to tolerate him. If that's what Jesus did with me, I would be annihilated. Right? And so the more you dwell on that, the more you can move towards people when you like, you're just not into what they're into, you know? Or you just don't get it. Um, one of the things that, you know, the name that's mentioned a lot in this pulpit is a guy named Tim Keller. Well, his funeral was about four weeks ago, and his sons that are now in their 40s, 
started mentioning things that really were impactful um, about Keller and growing up with him. And he said, around one of their sons, one of his sons said, around the table, you know, dad would ask us about the Yankees. And we could tell, like, dad didn't care about the Yankees. Like, that, that was not an important thing to him. But we knew that he cared about us. And so he was like, okay, tell me how the Yankees are doing. Now, why, you know, Tim Keller has all these accolades, all these books, all this influence. Why is that the thing that his sons remember at his death? It's because he incarnated into their world and became like them. So here's how it plays out. Maybe you're not ready. Maybe you're not ready to sit down with someone who voted differently than you and actually hear their heart. That's okay. Start small. Start with people that you feel safe around, your children, your parents, your siblings, and you say things that, you know, gosh, like, I I could care less. I could care less about curtains, you know. But, like, my spouse is real into the color of these curtains, and so, like, I'm going to get into this, you know? Are your children are, like, super into Minecraft? Um, are you into, like, you know, sports like soccer and you get into Arsenal, you know, or Chelsea? Um, I do like Chelsea, by the way. Yeah, let's go. Um, but you guys, like, just incarnating into the world of somebody else, like, take, take a small step, and the voice of Haman is going to tell you, uh, I don't get what they're into, and therefore I'm not going to get into it. And Jesus is telling you, get into the life of the people that you're around. Jesus says, I was totally different than you, my child. I, you know, Jesus is like, I was enjoying heavenly things where, like, stuff doesn't die. And I came into your world, which was toxic to me. And I came because I love you. That's God toward you. And the, again, the distance that he had to travel to get to us is not comparable to the distance that we have to travel to get to our worst enemy. There's this part in John, as we come to a close in John 1, where it it says, Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And I don't know what it's like for you guys to go to your home, but I love my home. It's a place of exhale. It's a place of rest. I know not everybody's home is like that, but maybe you do have something like that in this world. A person, a place, a thing that like when, when you're in the presence of it, you're like, oh, I can just rest. Jesus never, ever had that with anything, anywhere, with anybody. And I, I, know, it's hard, I know it's hard to hear, but everything that he experienced, he was in an intolerable situation. It hurt him. Everything. He didn't even have a home. And the reason why he... He did that was so that he could get you, so that he could be joined in relationship and form a community with you. He never allowed himself to be only around people that affirmed him. And the reason why is because he was showing us what his kingdom looks like. A kingdom 
where it's a different way of being with the other. He was showing us that he was the Lamb of God that takes away the pride in the world and reforming communities, not based on affirmation, but grace. Not based on sameness, but, but difference united in him. And Jesus is actually inviting us into that true diversity, which isn't hollow or forced, but Jesus says, I actually bought that diversity with my blood, and I am forming it. I purchased it with my blood, says Ephesians 2, and I am bringing diverse people into union with each other because they're united to me. And in Jesus Christ, you see the opposite of Haman. He's moving towards people that don't affirm him, and he's changing their hearts. And what I, uh, what I want to see next week in Esther 4 is how that truth actually transforms Esther. And it makes, her, it makes her into a person that's willing to sacrifice herself. And what happens when she does that is that herself is reborn. So that's uh, what we'll look at next week. Let's pray and enter into that time of confession. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness, which allows us to have the safety and freedom to say things that are in our hearts that we wish weren't there. And so, Lord, help us to, to take this time seriously as we confess sin, knowing that when we don't get our own way, there is actually joy at the end of that, whereas when we do only get our way, that only leads to loneliness and misery and anxiety. And so, Lord, free us up in this community right now to, to see Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.